Our scripture reading this morning comes from the Gospel of Matthew in the third chapter. Let us listen together for the word of the Lord. In those days, John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness of Judea, proclaiming, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. This is the one of whom the prophet Isaiah spoke when he said, The voice of one crying out in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now John wore clothing of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then the people of Jerusalem and all Judea were going out to him and all the region along the Jordan, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers! Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit worthy of repentance, and do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our ancestor. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children to Abraham, even now, the axe is lying at the root of the trees. Every, good tr- every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but one is coming, one who is more powerful than I is coming after me. I am not worthy to carry his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear the threshing floor and will gather his wheat into the granary, but the chaff he will burn in an unquenchable fire. Here ends the reading. My goodness. Can you picture it? Out in the wilderness, this wild man shouting at you, Repent! Prepare the way of the Lord. And he baptizes those who are confessing their sins, baptizing and confessing all the while, the people pouring their hearts out, confessing everything that is on their hearts, repenting, turning around. This joint confession and baptism is what's getting us ready for the coming of the one who has promised, the one who is going to set everything to rights even if it means burning some of it down. So get good and drenched in this river, because a fire is coming. As I understand it, a few generations ago, there was a pastor who was too heavy-handed with corporate confession and too light with the message of grace and forgiveness, and people would feel pretty down about themselves when they left this place. And so we have taken corporate confession out of our liturgy. On Sunday mornings, many Christians, even in our own tradition, all say, like we say, a unison prayer of invocation. They would also say a unison prayer of confession. And then the pastor would come down in the middle and remind the people that they are forgiven. It's a challenging but beautiful way to start the week off fresh. But one of the problems with corporate confession, I know, is that we don't all turn away from God in the same ways. So it's hard to write a statement that would encapsulate the different ways we could turn away. 
So we're left with something that's a little too general, something sounding like this. We confess all the things we have done and all the things we have left undone. Oh my goodness. I mean, if I had to say that every Sunday, I think I'd say, can you give me a minute? I'll be right back. That list of the things I've left undone is very long. I'll be right back. But not making a confession together also means we don't get to hear that assurance of pardon. So all of these people, confessing together and being baptized in the river, and onto this scene arrive the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The message translation has some insight to offer us because it puts it this way. When John realized that a lot of Pharisees and Sadducees were showing up for a baptismal experience because it was the popular thing to do, that's when he exploded. You brood of vipers. I think the biggest issue for John was that they didn't come with contrite hearts. They didn't come confessing. They came making excuses. They came because it was trendy. They wanted to be trendy too, but they weren't ready to confess to anything. So the people who have the place of power have come down to the river to be like the people on the fringe. Like today, we see this too, with popular trends. They're not set by the wealthy, but by the young and the hip and the urban. So cool hunters will go out to the streets and find the latest fashion and then try to be the first ones to co-opt it and market it to the masses. But as soon as everyone else has taken it over and the elite are doing this same trendy thing, the trendsetters have to distinguish themselves and set themselves apart in a different way. So they look for something new, and the chase goes around again. It can also be generational. Older people copy what the younger people are doing because it seems like it's fun, but as soon as they do, the younger people drop it. I'm sure you all had a term for something that was cool when you were young, and as soon as you heard your parents try that term, as soon as your, or your grandfather said groovy, you realized you needed a new turn of phrase, right? So when I was growing up, things were cool, but now my nephews tell me when they make an excellent basketball shot, they say, oh, that was sick, and they want me to know that sick is a good thing. And I asked someone, a young person, just at the fair over lunch yesterday, what the kids are saying right now. What is the most current way to say something is trendy or cool? It's a perfect word for Advent. Lit. That is lit. So the Pharisees and the Sadducees are coming down to the river because a baptismal experience is lit. But the thing is, they came anyway. They knew there was something that the people in the wilderness had found, and they wanted it too. They wanted to catch on. My seminary professor, Thomas Troger, wrote a book that I pick up every Advent season. The book is called Preaching While the Church is Under Reconstruction, and it makes me think of those poor Pharisees and Sadducees who had the elite place and their tradition, but they just wanted to get in on the current movement. So in this book, Tom Troger begins with this beautiful sort of parable slash poem about a congregation who had a beautiful mosaic 
up over the front of the church. And the image was of God, the Almighty Father. And people didn't really know why, if maybe there had been too much rain on the roof or maybe the walls of the church had shifted outward a little bit toward the marketplace, but that image of the icon had crashed down in the church, leaving a God-shaped hole. And he writes, services now were held under the God-shaped hole. Prayers said, hymns sung, infants baptized, sermons preached, offerings made, communions celebrated, couples wed, and the dead remembered. The story goes on to show the struggles that people had in trying to fill that God-shaped hole. But then also all the possibilities that opened up under it. Imagine worshiping under real stars when those mosaic stars had fallen, up, fallen under. So the story ends, for the time being, all that was done was to rope off the area beneath the God-shaped hole to make sure no one was hit by a piece of mosaic that would fall from time to time from a cracked angel or a star. So I think of those Pharisees and those Sadducees who have come out for this baptismal experience, and I imagine that they felt like they were living in their day and age under a God-shaped hole. When would the Messiah come to them, and how could they get ready? Then in this book that I love, Tom Troger turns to what he thinks is the perfect example of how you can live faithfully under that God-shaped hole. The words written by Christina Rossetti for the hymn In the Bleak Midwinter. And he writes that the reason she wrote the words the way she did was because Charles Darwin, only 12 years before, had published or The Origin of Species. And this had rocked the faith of people in England and around the world, all of these findings. Their faith was profoundly shaken. It seemed to leave a God-shaped hole around the people. So it is into this void that she opens her passage. In the bleak midwinter, frosty wind made moan. Earth stood hard as iron and water like a stone. Snow had fallen, snow on snow, snow on snow. In the bleak midwinter, Long, long ago. This mournful beginning. But how it recognizes how bleak everything is, how cold and frozen over, is a sort of Advent confession. If we want to confess, if we want to repent, first we have to name what is going on around us that's hard. We have to look at where we are. And then she goes on with a paradox that fits Advent so perfectly, where she says, Our God, heaven can't hold him, nor earth sustain. Heaven and earth will flee away when he comes to reign. How can the one who's coming will make heaven and earth flee away? Come to a place that we could prepare a place humble, a place near us, a place even like a stable. How can we reconcile those differences in our minds? 
This is the Advent paradox. So this framing of Christmas happening in England, because of course Bethlehem doesn't get frozen over to this degree. It's not in Bethlehem that she's imagining this happening, but even in her own backyard in England. And what she's acknowledging is that God is coming to us right where we are. We can reimagine thinking of these stories as happening in our own lives. I think our time is no different than what the Pharisees and the Sadducees were struggling with. I think we have all experienced a kind of that mosaic falling in around us. Thank God these rafters look very sturdy. But there are still holes around us, holes in the fabric of society. I told a young woman a story about my friend the other day, and she said, Is that real? She said, You hear about stories like that sometimes, but is that real? We even question what's real anymore and who gets to say it, who gets to tell the story. Or perhaps a relationship has fallen in. Perhaps it's the void in your own life that's most visible to you from where you sit. Perhaps a friend, a child, or a sibling, someone you love very dearly, How are we to keep living, and how are we to prepare beside that kind of a whole? And how can we, as we sit in these pieces of the fallen mosaic, prepare for the coming who will fill that hole in a way we cannot even imagine yet? So my heart goes out to the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They come maybe just out of curiosity, or maybe holding back, They come because it's trendy. They come for all the wrong reasons, convinced they have nothing to confess. And I think of some people who approach Christmas also feeling like they might have a little bit of a grinchy spirit about them. But the good news that I find is right here in the text. John baptizes these people anyway. He talks a big game while he's shouting at them, but did you notice he doesn't send them away? And so perhaps their lives were also changed by the time they, ca- they came back up out of that cold water. Again, from the Message Bible, John says to them, of course, after giving them a long lecture, he says, I'm baptizing you here in the river, turning your old life in for a kingdom life. Even if we come for the wrong reasons, even if we come with crabbiness in our hearts, there's still the possibility for us. I remember when I was a child, my mother, who truthfully could out Martha, Martha Stewart, used to make these little meringues, and they, were, they came in two parts. There would be a little dome part, and then a little, people are nodding, they can picture where I'm going with this, a little stem part, and she would melt bittersweet chocolate and fuse them together and dust the tops with cocoa powder, and they looked exactly like the most darling little woodland mushrooms. And she would make them by the tray, which was a good thing because there were a lot of us. 
And she would say that she was saving them for people who had the Christmas spirit in December. But I think what she really meant was an Advent spirit, a spirit of kindness and joy and generosity. She wanted to see kids who were excited about what they were going to give someone else and not about what they were going to get. But I remember December's when the Christmas spirit would seem so far off and so impossible. I remember the stress of exams, and I know the students among us are going through that now. I remember being cold and grumpy because we had to shovel the frozen driveway, and it always seemed like there was a sibling who shall remain nameless who wasn't pulling her weight. (laughs) I often remember the December that we lost my grandmother on December 17th. And I remember my grandfather making sure that she had her warmest wool socks on before her casket went in that frozen ground. Earth stood hard as iron and water like a stone. But I also remember those meringues as though there was something magical about them. Because even just seeing them laid out on the kitchen counters would suddenly give you that spark of Christmas joy. And who wouldn't be able to think of something kind they could do or say for someone around them? So I remember now, looking back, I imagine it happened more like this. My mother would look at her crabby, sad, stressed out children and think, you little brood of vipers. (laughs) and start whipping up meringues and melting chocolate and think, I know how to get you in the Christmas spirit. The thing about this story, the good news, is how much God has done for us already. Jesus, of course, in the very next verse, and a conversation with Paul helped me realize this this week. Again, we're not waiting for baby Jesus in the manger. In this story, where's Jesus coming from? But right around the bend in the river, because he is going to be the next one in, the next one to get baptized. We know this, don't we? He is right around the corner, coming to meet these people right where they are, even this brood of vipers. There is the grace. He is practically here, and we just need to get ready to meet him. And if you need a changed life, join the club. The people are pouring out of the cities, recognizing that they will repent, they will turn around. You are in great company. And even if you can't get to a place of confession, this is what I love about the story. I had to read it about 25 times to realize this and realize that this is the beauty and the good news in the story. What John has done by naming these people the brood of vipers, might be more like this. You can't confess. You came a little too proud, a little too haughty. Here, I'll do it for you. Okay, you brood of vipers, come on in. You can get baptized too, even if you came for the wrong reasons, even if you're feeling grinchy in your heart. Here is the water for your repentance. There is plenty in this river. As we prepare to meet God, God has already prepared to meet us, saying, come, whoever you are, however you're feeling, wherever you are, come, for all things are ready. Thanks be to God.